Oliver Stone, welcome to Redlines. I know I speak on behalf of the entire Gray Zone team when I say we're very excited to host you. Thank you. I uh, I love Gray, I love Gray Zone. I think it does some great work, and uh, not too, not enough people see it. So, well, we appreciate those those comments, and your your work has definitely inspired some of our journalism. So. Let's just get right into it. You've just released Chasing the Light. I've got it right here. It's your memoir, looking back at writing and directing, Platoon, Scarface, Salvador, Midnight Express. A major theme in your memoir, and I believe expressed through the protagonists in many of your films, such as Richard Boyle and Salvador, Chris Taylor and Platoon, and even Tony Montana and Scarface, is an initial belief or desire to believe in the American dream and America's superficial ideals, which is eventually contradicted by their individual experiences. You, in fact, open your memoir by reflecting on your time on the 4th of July in 1976 as you're watching a fireworks display in New York City, and you write, quote, I wanted to believe, like them, the million people around me, but I didn't feel it. I felt the awe, but also the profound terror because I'd been here before. On a night like this, I'd seen the most spectacular fireworks of all, the real thing. That's a reference to your time you spent as a soldier in Vietnam. You say, so much power, so much death in one place at one time, never to be forgotten. How did the Vietnam War impact your view of the United States? A lot, <laughs> a lot. I mean, I was not, uh, politically evolved. I was. I grew up in a conservative, uh, Republican family in New York. My father was a stockbroker. My mother was a French uh, girl. He married in World War II, uh, and brought home to the U.S. And uh, my view of America was still evolving in 1976 uh, when the book opens. I'm 30 years old. I'm depressed and broke because I've been writing a lot of screenplays and nothing's happened. Uh, I'm married, uh, not going well. And uh, in fact, my marriage is ending at that point. Uh, so out of those depths, uh, I'm, I'm suggesting in the book that, that out of those depths came this feeling that I could write another screenplay about actually my own experience in Vietnam, which had occurred from 1967 to eight, when I'd been over there eight years before this day. Uh, why? Perhaps it was the fireworks. You know, there was so much fireworks that night. Uh, that night in New York, there was. You remember the tall ships? You oh, you're too young, but the tall ships. There was 200 vessels of all shapes and sizes from every country in the world, practically, and fireworks were going off day and the day was spectacular, and the night was all fireworks. And I, I think there might have been a million people packed into Lower Manhattan. Uh, it was a lot and there was an excitement in the air because Jimmy Carter was coming to town and the Democratic Convention was about to happen the next week. So I just remember all that fever, that excitement, that change, as I pointed out. Uh, and there was a change. Carter did represent in 76 a huge feeling of we're getting away from the Nixon uh, Ford era. We're going to go into a new, a new feeling. Uh, there'll be more prosperity, more, more money in people's pockets, more sex, very much a, a feeling of being 30. On the other hand, I was going against that feeling by also feeling that my hopes, I, my hopes were, were dashed. I was, I, was, I was struggling and lost. It's a strange feeling. But anyway, out of those fireworks that night, I think may have come this memory had been buried in me about that night in Vietnam, January 1, 1968, when I'd been in an all-night battle from uh, the set that when dark came on around nine o'clock, it went to about six in the morning, five in the morning, all night. It never stopped. It was a huge attack uh, on us. I was in the 25th Infantry. It was at the called Firebase uh, Pace uh, at the time, or I'm sorry, Firebase Burt, but I call I call it Su Suicut because that's the name of the village that was nearby. Suicut. People will remember that battle forever. It's uh, I think we were hit by, a, I guess, a regiment of North Vietnamese, and uh, by the in the morning. But it's a strange battle, the way I describe it. And I, you have to read the book to understand. 
we killed about four to 500 of them. And they, about 25 of us were killed and about 150 wounded. So it was quite a, an all night battle. And, but I was, uh, as I said, at the end of that battle, I had not seen one enemy. I had not fired my rifle. All I'd been doing, all I'd been moved from one position to another all night, never saw an enemy, never saw, but heard about it all. It was all going to the radio. And uh, it was as if I was protected that night. Uh, the it truth was that way. Yeah. And the way that you, you describe it in the book. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. Nothing is what it seems. Uh, and one, the only thing that happened was that I got concussed. Uh, I was blown into the air and blacked out by a beehive round from our own tanks, which is typical of Vietnam because we had a lot of friendly fire casualties. And uh, that is the basis for remembering the past and bringing up this, because Platoon grew, I wrote Platoon very quickly in that, in that time period. My mother's grandmother in France had also died and I go back to France to see her funeral. She's, she's laid out on the bed, she's, as they did in France in those days, it's a custom. And, you know, you, you attend to the dead, you talk to the dead for, you communicate with them before they're buried. And uh, it was a very powerful scene that uh, evolves where I try, uh, I speaking to my grandmother, she speaks to me. I, I said, you know, it's time for me to get really serious if I'm going to, I'm going to go on with this dream that I have to make a movie or not. And she's telling me basically that I should go on, that I should really be more serious about it than I, and at the age of 30, things changed. It's, it's bizarre because that platoon script that I wrote was optioned pretty quickly by a, a major Hollywood producer and led one thing led to the other. And right away I was signed up to do uh, this new script about midnight express. So that was really the beginning of my career. And by the age of 33, I had gotten an Academy award. It went pretty fast. And then I had some backers reversals of fortune and basically by my the book ends on chapter 10 when I'm I, it's quite an up and down story there's a lot of roller coasters here and it ends with my making two films in a row Salvador and Platoon in at the age of 38 39 and 40 and I as you know it's just one thing leads to the other and there's both films put me back on top yeah. and Platoon the world, I believe, is the name of that chapter, and and I'll ask you more about Platoon specifically. But I, I don't think people would r realize that you actually volunteered for the draft as a young man. You said you wanted to quote be like everybody else, an anonymous inf infantryman, cannon fodder down there in the muck with the masses. How did that time, your experience down there in the muck with the masses? Later, how was it reflected in your filmmaking, even when you're telling the stories of very powerful people? Well, in many ways, I, it's uh, that's sort of what it is. It's, it's I, you see, I grew up in shelter society. As a, uh, I went to boarding school, went to Yale University, and dropped out. Uh, I wasn't happy. There was a lot of problems in my 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 parents got a very tumultuous divorce. And it upset me because I didn't understand anything that was going on at the age of 15. So the first 15 years were pretty, were a dream. And you said earlier the superficiality of the American dream. I'm not sure I would call it that, but it was a dream. Uh, and after that, I went on my own. I, there was a whole, I talked about going out to Asia, becoming a teacher. I went to the Merchant Marine. I traveled all over Asia. Then I wrote a book, a confessional book, self about as a 19-year-old boy. It was published finally in 1997. But so I'd been through a lot and gone back to school and dropped out again, trying to adjust to society. I couldn't adjust to uh, East Coast society. There was something. My father's world was was closed to me. I, I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't like all the competition. Frankly, it was too competitive, constantly competitive, and I had. I had what you call burnout. They didn't call it that in those days. I really was burned out. And uh, I went off and I said, look, uh, I'm thinking about myself too much. It's about time I got real, like in keeping with, you know, what is reality? You don't know when you're 17. You don't know if you exist. You're not sure about your identity. And that's why they have a lot of problems uh, now as well as then. And so uh, 
I had to find myself, as they say, and I wasn't sure. So going off to the army kind of threw it away. I said, okay, it's up to God. I, I believed in a God at that point. And I said, you know, let the, I'll throw the dice. You know, if I'm meant to come back from this war, I'll come back. If not, I accept it. And I was rather fatalistic when I went in. And I wanted Vietnam, I wanted infantry. I didn't want to fuck around and try to be an officer or anything like that. I just wanted to see what it was like at the bottom of the barrel. And out of that came, if you see my films, you, you, I think you see that a lot of underdogs uh, are the heroes in these films. And I think that's become a theme in my life, that uh, people who are down under sometimes are the most heroic people, the most genuine people. And uh, it's been a battle between underdog and overdog, so to speak, in, in a lot of my movies. Yeah, I think you even managed to get people to sympathize with someone like Tony Montana, who on the surface is a criminal yeah. drug dealer in Miami, but you kind of feel for him in a way. And, and I'll ask again more about Scarface later, but sticking to Vietnam for a moment, you write about the bond you formed with black soldiers during your time in Vietnam, saying they taught you, quote, a feeling for real love, love that exists between human beings, and that's the most important thing any soldier can keep in war, his humanity. Without it, we're beasts. I'm wondering, in what ways do you think race relations among average soldiers in Vietnam complemented or contradicted the experience of the United States at the time? You were actually in Vietnam in 1968, the year MLK and RFK were assassinated, leading to extreme political unrest. That's a very, that's a key question and a good one because uh, this was written, by the way, this was written, the book was written, this area was written before Black Lives Matter, so I wasn't trailing on this. My experience in Vietnam was the people who I am the most comfortable with, the most friendly were the black soldiers in my platoons. And they used to hang out in the, in the when we went to the rear, we hang out, smoke dope, and listen to music, and talk, and dance, too. If you saw Platoon, there was a dance scene in it. You know, men dancing together. This was, it was a, a more relaxed and almost feminine at times uh, relationship. Uh, and that's very important because war is so dry and hard and deadening to the mind that I, I think everybody who goes over into that situation changes and uh, there, uh, there was a lot of racism yes not it was against the vietnamese and I, one of the great themes of the war was our trashing of the civilian population now that happened constantly because i think a lot of the soldiers were racist against they hated the uh, vietnamese uh, now i didn't feel that the the black uh, soldiers hated them as much, of course, there are different people. There's some black soldiers did, and so, but most didn't, and so many white people, white soldiers liked them too, but many hated them. There were a lot of soldiers who were uneducated. They were from the south. They were tough people, and uh, they kept thinking that the civilians were helping the enemy. And of course, that's an ambiguous issue, because what well, you know, we were fighting the people that were essentially seeking peace and their freedom from overlords and oppressors. So it was a complicated war. And I get into that in platoon with the, with the, with the, when Barnes, the one of the sergeants kills the villagers and he's brought up on a war crime for it by the other sergeant, Elias. The point of that is that we were fighting among ourselves uh, inside each platoon. I was in three combat platoons, three different ones, different places too. So I, I felt this problem growing through 60 September 67 I felt it growing into 68 and it worsened after King was killed in April was it of 68 it was it was uh, the whole and then Johnson of course quit the war said he was not going to run on the run again and that was a signal that tripped off everything that it was just a war that we were going to just try to survive in nobody wanted to die for this cause or uh, even it was uh, who would be the last American to die in Vietnam became a kind of a constant. But the black soldiers saved me in a sense because I needed some respite from it. I needed to get away from it. And in that whole world of 
in the rear of music, uh, there was love. There was a there was a brotherhood, a bond between soldiers uh, that would grow up, and it's a strange bond. Never thought it would happen because I had no experience with black black people before in my existence in New York, except fear in the streets of New York. So uh, you have to understand it was a big thing for me. And I developed that theme in Platoon. I fell in love with this way of life, came back. Yeah, I was smoking dope. I was, uh, you know, you can talk all you want. I listened to the music. I was talking like a black man. My father was furious. You know, it was a change in personality, but it was an opening up to new ways of life. Very important to me. You reference something in your book called the lie of our culture. That's what you refer to, saying it's the root of our failure. You write, quote, the hypocrisy and more and more corruption sickened me then and now, which is one of the reasons why I got so much into got into so much trouble later on criticizing our way of life because we lie to ourselves and we've confused the ordinary citizen who worries that terrorists are hiding in our, his barbecue pit or that Russia is subverting our democracy with insidious forms of hybrid warfare or Chinese economics are eating our lunches with their chopsticks. And I'm wondering, what do you, how would you describe that lie, the lie of our culture and who is responsible for telling it? Uh, I'm not, I'm going to, I'm addressing this issue up to the, where the book ends, 1986, yeah. uh, because Obviously, my ideas expand as I get older, but at that time, there was only th there were three. I said there were three lies that haunted me when I came out of Vietnam, and I couldn't even articulate it like I'm doing now. At that time, I just was numb and I was alienated. But three things were apparent. One, I talk about friendly fire. Friendly fire is when you are, are you're the same. The soldiers on the, the soldiers on the same. Same side, Americans kill them, kill others. Now, this is a this is a very sensitive subject because parents don't know that many of their children are have been killed that way, and they would be horrified. And the Pentagon would uh, buries this information as much as possible. Um, the friendly fire statistics are, are much higher than they say. By my experience, uh, they were in the jungle. You don't see very well. It's very complicated, these firefights. Uh, and people behind you open fire, and they don't know where you are and so forth. And then there's a whole business with the artillery coming in, and they come in tight. And sometimes they miss, and they have the wrong coordinates. I showed that in Platoon. Uh, and there's also the air, the, the, the helicopters, and sometimes the, the planes that are dropping bombs there. That's very tough stuff. And sometimes they drop them real close, real close, as they did that night at the January 1, 68. So people get hurt. I was wounded twice. I believe the first time I was wounded by a grenade thrown by a fellow soldier who was an idiot. But anyway, he, he threw the grenade stupidly. I, I believe, I can't prove it. But I, I just sense that that was what it was. And I think a lot of more people are get hurt by their own troops than you know. I estimated in the book 15 to 20 percent. That's a lot. That's a lot of people. You, but officially, you know, it's in the after-action reports. They never write that up. Uh, in fact, I had a scene like that in Born on the Fourth of July with Ron Kovic. Is sure he shot his own man. When he reports it to his commander, the commander dismisses it because he doesn't want to deal with it, and it haunts uh, Kovic until the moment he's shot. It's an important theme and it's very, it's not talked about. And I think it's true also in Afghanistan and Iraq, very much so. In fact, that famous uh, football player who went over there Pat. was killed. Uh, Pat, what? Pat? Pat Tillman. Yeah, Pat Tillman, who played for the Arizona Cardinals, was killed by friendly fire. But they wouldn't report it at first. It was all mucked up. A lot of that goes on. So believe me, the second lie was the trashing civilian, killing civilians. Oh. We were in so many villages that we were, we'd split between jungle and village. We would go into the villages. Yeah, we, we would investigate for arms and rice supplies, everything. We had to know what was going on and we'd find things. And sometimes we, we wouldn't find things which would lead to frustration. Sometimes you're losing men in the jungle to mines, booby traps, this, that. You come to a village, you take out your frustration. I saw a few incidents that were pretty raw 
And I, I talk about that in the book, and I talk about myself almost crossing the line. I didn't cross the line, but I almost did, because you could get really upset. Uh, by example, and we didn't know about it then, but the My Lai Massacre in March of 68 is all about that. In fact, when you get into the My Lai Massacre, I tried to make a movie about it, but it fell apart because it was a tough subject for people. Uh, it was uh, in My Lai, these, uh, there were several platoons that went into a series of villages in that province and they had bad information. The information came from the CIA who had just tortured a few people and they gave them faulty information telling them that there would be a such and such NBA, North Vietnamese regiment in the villages that day near Milai. And they went in thinking they were seeing the enemy. They weren't. They were not one enemy bullet was fired at the soldiers. Not one. That's what the army investigation revealed. The, own, the army investigated itself honestly, but then the report was of course smothered and all the, uh, the guy who, who led the report, General Pierce, was a, he's a hero of mine. He, he tried to bust, he indicted 25 people all the way to the top of the division. He indicted the general of the division. In fact, it goes beyond the division. It goes to the CIA guy who was, who was providing information to the general. It's, it's such an ugly story that no wonder Callie's the only guy that got busted. I mean, they, get, they let everybody off the hook. But that is, here you kill 500 plus civilians in cold blood in this village and they were slaughtered in the most brutal way when you get into the details so it's that's the worst example i know but it was going on on a small scale everywhere i believe everywhere people were knocking off vietnamese Jeez. because they were another another race or whatever they were to many of us they were gooks they were not human beings that happens that's the second lie the third lie is the biggest one of all is that we're winning the war which was bullshit from the beginning. We were never winning the war. We thought maybe we were winning the war, but we were doing everything wrong, everything wrong in our tactics, strategy, and in our reporting. Uh, I talk about Westmoreland coming out to our, to our battle and taking the wrong conclusions from it. Uh, three weeks later, we had the task. I'm sorry. He was complaining about your haircuts. Yeah, well. I, I wasn't there, but I heard that story that our uniforms were not together. We're not, <laughs> we're not bloused and all that, but we, we, we were not, a, we were a ragged looking troop. Uh, we've been in the field so long. Uh, but the point was the, the strategists were not thinking about what the Vietnamese were really doing. They, they were worried about Khe Sanh, which was not, which was a, a red herring. They were, they were really, the enemy was aiming for Saigon. They were going to cut the country and, at the Capitol, and they almost did. But the point was that we are lying about the whole war to the American people. We were inflating the body counts, inflating them enormously. And at one point in the war, they were saying, oh, the Viet, the Viet, the Viet Cong are going to, uh, NBA are going to run out of people. They never did. As many as we were killing, they, of course, they would count civilians as NBA, all kinds of dirty tricks. People were there at the upper classes to get promoted. Officers were in the field to get promoted. They go out when they had to. Some of them, uh, master sergeants too. It was, it was. People knew that it was. It was a paycheck. If you were an older, so experienced soldier from World War II in Korea, you knew that score. You'd stay out of the field as much as possible, but get your combat pay. Get every extra bonus you can get. Go to the PX. PX is a gold mine. It's like Las Vegas. You can hit the jackpot. You buy stuff at the, at the PX, you resell it. Uh, all kinds of games. I mean, we were moving cars over there. We were doing, uh, there was tremendous amount of value we sent to Vietnam that disappeared. It went into the South Vietnamese army pockets. It went into, eventually it ended up in the, in the NVA pockets, or even our weaponry. It was an amazing racket. Huge racket. You have to imagine a Las Vegas being sent to Vietnam. All that money, all those base camps, all those helicopters, 5,000 of them got shot down, plus several, another 2,000, I believe, Vietnamese helicopters, South Vietnamese. So we have Bell Helicopters making a fortune. Uh, Brown and Root is making a fortune building base camps. Uh, it was a racket from beginning to end. It was a lie. And to fight uh, communism, although as we know, it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a communism that threatened our our uh, 
it was an independence revolution fought by the Vietnamese for centuries against the French and against the Chinese too. They just didn't want to be a colony anymore and we could not get out of that mindset. So those three lies are what I talked about and that haunted me after the war. But I took me a time, it took me a while to come around to it. Uh, but I, they, they, they're, at the, they're at the basis. I know how government's official stories lie. And you have to, you have to think about that in terms of where we are now with the Iraq wars and the Afghani war. I mean, you, you saw the report, I think, in December of last year. We, the Afghani papers came out. They were, they were featured, actually, in the Washington Post. I couldn't believe that. And it's a one, it goes back, it traces all the, the misreporting that happened from Afghanistan. Uh, and the objectives and the the timeline and the reality we never faced the reality that we would never get out of there alive it was a quagmire and then when it right when it seems like it may end a dubious story claiming that russians are paying the taliban to kill u.s soldiers services and any chance of withdrawal seems sabotaged which i personally think was actually something president trump did genuinely want to follow through on one entertaining moment in the book is when you discuss your acceptance speech for best screenwriting at the Golden Globes for Midnight Express. You use the moment to try and denounce the law and order era of Nixon and Hollywood's complicity in promoting it. It wasn't received well. You were actually, you talked about being booed off stage by your colleagues in attendance. But you add, quote, Hollywood at that time was actually far less hysterical and more tolerant than what it's become. What did you mean by that? How has Hollywood changed since even that time? Well, first, there are two things in this issue. One was, I was an early early bird on that, maybe too early. I hated the uh, cop shows I was seeing. I, I turn, turn them on, and they would always be the same theme, bad guys, a drug dealer. Uh, sometimes, often, he was black or, uh, or Hispanic, but they they get carted off to jail. The cops were, the detectives were doing their job. It was, it was sold to us that uh, drugs were bad, that drug war was necessary on television constantly. They made money on it, a lot of money. All these shows, uh, re repetitive shows. And I really, I was in the room at that night with, with the producers and they were getting awards for making these shows. And I just thought it was hypocritical because it's easy to blame Turkey for their harsh drug laws, but we had forced Turkey into those laws because we had tried to interdict uh, their poppy growth. And it's a whole dirty story. It goes, you can tie their, the poppy growth to Afghanistan, which is an amazing story, but that's not the space for it here. The drug war was corrupt from beginning to end. There was never an honesty about it. And also, why did you have the drug war? Why, why is America lecturing other countries on how to do things and interfering in their affairs when we our problem is here we're the demand factor we want the drugs and uh, the question comes up of legalization of drugs too these issues were in my head back then and i was trying to kind of unfortunately i hadn't written the speech and i was loaded i was drunk i also had smoked, snorted some cocaine that night it was a wild time in hollywood in the late 70s and i couldn't get my tongue around my my thoughts so I got up on stage. I won this award for a screenplay of Midnight Express, and I screwed it up, <laughs> and I got booed off the stage. But I was a frustrated young man that way because I wanted to get this stuff out. And I, the movie Midnight Express was being misunderstood by so many people, especially critics who were saying it was so overviolent and over, you know, zealous and uh, anti-Turkish. It, it wasn't intended that way. But my message was lost. Now, as to the other issue, which was you mentioned, which is Hollywood, uh, yeah, it was more tolerant in those days. It was the seventies. There was more of everything around. It wasn't. It, it wasn't a televised event, among other things. So now, I guess, it has it changed a lot. I mean, the law. Uh, people are much more intolerant of other people's behavior. They're jumping on every word somebody says. We're oversensitive about uh, mistakes and. Uh, there's, it's not as much fun as it used to be. I think it's just bigger and more corporate, more money. And you know, now we have AT&T, we have all these uh, corporations moving in. It's just moved into another phase. 
And it's mostly about television now. Yeah, yeah, I'll ask you more about that later. But you say you made up for that speech at the Golden Globes when you wrote the monologue delivered by Al Pacino as Tony Montana in Scarface, when he denounces Miami High Society and tells them they actually need a bad guy like him and that they'll never get a bad guy like him again. You're not good. You just know how to hide. How to lie. Me, I don't have that problem. Me, I always tell the truth. Even when I lie. So say good night to the bad guy. Come on. The last time you're gonna see a bad guy like this again, let me tell you. That's right. That's what I just. That's what that's what I was trying to say. Is you, you've got to pick out these villains. I mean, Tony ultimately was respected by the audience because he was a free man. He was the man. He 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 had the guts to say who he was, uh, which nobody else did. He was not a hypocrite, and I admired him for that. He was a free man. Uh, and if you watch the movie closely, the one thing he does it's positive and leads to his downfall is he refuses to kill the assassin who's about to blow up a, a character based on Orlando Letelier, the Chilean diplomat who was killed in Washington, D.C. in 1976. Make you feel good to kill a mother and a kiss, huh? Make you feel big, like you big man. Well, fuck you. What do you think I am? You think I killed two kids and a woman? Fuck that. I don't need that shit in my life. He refuses to follow through on the assassination because his wife and children are present. So this is a, a, a way when you start to see more humanity in Tony Montana, especially compared with the other, the other men he's working with. Uh, you say in the book, though, that the Cuban exile community actually succeeded in throwing your crew out of Miami during the filming of Scarface. What more can you tell us about that? Oh, it's just that I've had problems with the Cuban exiles ever since they, they have really been in my soup, uh, in anybody's soup. You cannot suggest one progressive idea in that community and they go nuts. It's, it's true about all exiles. It's true about the Vietnamese community in uh, Orange County. They uh, were very tough on people like Lely Hayslip, who wrote the book I did, Heaven and Earth. Uh, they don't want any of their Vietnamese saying that you know, the Ho Chi Minh uh, was, a, was a good guy. You, you have to, you, people who move to other countries become the worst of the uh, accusers. The, the, the Iranians too in Los Angeles, you know, they, they always, are, they say that country, or even Russians, they say the Russians. The, you understand what happens. You, you always love the country America because it's free, gives, gives you the new break. And then you have to blast the old, the old the old Europe, you know, like Donald Rumsfeld called it, or blast the Cuba. They never stopped on Cuba. Cubans are very hot-headed. They hated Castro. You, you, I mean, they would have, I don't know, I mean, it just turned into a, a hate fest uh, out of Orwell. I mean, America has lost its mind on Castro. We've had how, how many years has this embargo been going on? It's insane. Everybody in Europe thinks it's a joke and, and thinks, even at the UN, and they it's like, why is America so stubborn about it? And uh, it's a good question. And I, I think America's uh, stubbornness about uh, we give solace, we help, we give sanctuary to, to terrorists. We know Cuban terrorists are on our our property who go there to Cuba and kill kill people, kill civilians, blow up airliners. We give them sanctuary. Certainly, and, and that goes by the way. It goes for Salvador, it goes for the Contador groups, it goes for Argentinians, it goes for everybody, who tor every torturer who, who lives in this country, they come to this country because they stash their money here and they come here to live. And there's a lot of them from all the South American countries and Central American countries. That's Salvador and known, known leaders of death squads are here. In fact, we had, we had a lot to do with the Salvadoran death squads because we trained them. From uh, six, I forgot the names. Madonna, Madrano, yeah. In '67, uh, 
we brought the Salvadoran uh, military to Vietnam to study our techniques, torturing Vietnamese, so they could bring them back to Salvador. And those people, a lot of those people were involved in the Salvadoran Civil War. And they killed quite a few uh, labor leaders, reformers, tortured them. Sad story. And then that even blows back to the United States today when media, sensationalist media or politicians complain about violence in the gang community. That's really blowback from our policy in El Salvador. We trained many of these people and it trickled down, came back here. People might not realize that out of all of your films that you write about in the book, Platoon was actually the most difficult to get finally made. It was passed up repeatedly and you were working on it forever. You write about how MGM actually didn't want the film because Henry Kissinger, as well as Reagan's Secretary of State Alexander Haig, sat on the company's board. How pervasive is that kind of political control in Hollywood even today? I can't prove that. That's my, I say very clearly in the book that this is my feeling at the time because that movie was no risk at that at that price. It was they cut the budget down. Uh, Mr. De Laurentiis was going to produce it with me and Michael Cimino, and we were for about three million dollars at that point. We cut the budget way down, which is very hard to do. I mean, it should have really cost six. Cut it to three, and uh, I was about to start it, and in the Philippines, and uh, we planned it all out. I had to cast it and everything. That was 83, 1983. And uh, all of a sudden, um, MGM, which was uh, the distributor for all of Dino's films, and he was making risky films with David Lynch, the Blue Velvet film was being distributed by them. So there was this acceptance at that point of the video revolution. There was a new video. Video was getting hot and people were making money off of it, so they, they would take sometimes a risk on a film like Blue Velvet and certainly Platoon. He was no problem for Dino, but they wouldn't put up a three million, a measly $3 million to distribute the film. Now, I, you never can find out why they won't, you, but you, they always say no. But I know that the head of the uh, MGM studio was, was uh, either fronting, for saying no, because the, he was blaming it on the board. The board doesn't want to do it. He didn't say who, but who's on the board, you know. And whether he was lying in the first place, I don't know. He could have been. Like, he didn't even want to take it to the board. I don't know. You never know why they say no. But I heard a lot of no's in my time. Well, it was, it was very frustrating. You see, because in Vietnam, they were making a fortune off Sylvester Stallone stuff. Uh, he was going back to Vietnam, you remember, to save uh, MIAs, missing the missing yes. prisoners. Yes. There was a few hundred of them, and... He was saving them. And for, in other words, he was refighting the war, making America look like heroes and uh, the Vietnamese looking like thieving scoundrels. Uh, so, and Chuck Norris joined that brigade and was making his uh, version of that. So uh, Vietnam had not been very well depicted in American films. And I think Platoon was one of the first ones that was realistic about what was going on in the Great War. The first why it was successful but it was made against the popular concept of what they thought would be popular in fact the fact that it broke through in 86 so suddenly and it was so popular you realize that this film raced around the world it made a lot of money in america 130 36 million dollars it's a huge amount for that time this was the third largest gross in the in the country for that year and it was a realistic film that couldn't it was not geared for women it was not geared for younger younger children but yet women came in the third week. They started to come in droves. And then uh, young kids would get in. Even at 14, they'd sneak in. So the film, and not only in America, but everywhere, every country had a tremendous success with it. It was unbelievable. There was some yearning for truth. And it happened in my life once. And I, you know, and it's, it's happened a few times, actually, but never on such a big scale. Mm -hmm. yeah. One of my favorite films of yours is Salvador, starring James Woods. Back in the 1980s, you were skewing USAID for its hand in promoting regime change projects and war in Central America, and were very interested in the clandestine activities of spooks in the region. How did you develop that perspective on the region, and how has it lasted for you through today? Well, I, I took a trip there with Richard Boyle. Now, Richard's an interesting uh, pariah of a journalist. He'd been, he's covered Vietnam. 
he covered uh, Ireland. He'd been in Beirut. He always went for the wars. He went for the most dangerous assignments. And uh, he'd spent some time in Salvador during the 1980 period when that war was intense, at his most intense civil war. And uh, he knew the region. So he went, took me down there. I went to five countries with him. And sure enough, you know, I'd been in Vietnam in 65 as a teacher. I'd seen the growth of the U.S. community there. I saw the spooks, the guys who work in intelligence, the guys who sometimes wear a uniform, sometimes not. They were all over the place. And uh, then the soldiers come in. They came in about June of 65 into Saigon. So I saw the beginning of a war. And then when I went back, I saw the real thing. Uh, what happened was the same thing was going on when uh, Reagan, if you remember, Ronald Reagan wanted to destroy the revolution in Nicaragua. He thought it was a communist front and that they would cross. He, he literally said they could be crossing the Rio Grande any day from Nicaragua, which was insane. Uh, but he had that he had that power to and he sent money illegally to the Contras who were a terrorist group uh, that were infiltrating Nicaragua and killing, blowing up hospitals, doing anything to destroy the revolution, cutting telephones, wires down. It was an ugly, ugly war. Many civilians were killed. He also was mining the harbor in Managua, which the world court condemned him for. Anything to destroy this regime. And he was doing illegally because Congress did not pass the Boland Amendment and did not want him doing this. But he did it underneath the Rug and how did he do it? One of those was that he sold weapons to Iran, which became the Iran Contra scandal, to the Iranian government, who he was, he was supposed to be our national security threat too. And then he would take, he took the, the, the money from the Iranians and split it, took, gave 50% of it to the Contras through his Oliver North scheme. It was a dirty, dirty, dirty uh, operation. Uh, and he would have gone down for it. For, it was a treasonous uh, behavior, uh, illegal, wholly illegal. Reagan would have been impeached in a second if the Washington press corps hated him as much as Nixon, but they didn't. And Catherine Graham in the Washington Post did not want to have another Watergate. This is quote, she was quoted as saying, we can't afford, the country cannot afford another Watergate, which is nonsense because it was worse. It was a worse scandal than Watergate. Oh, yeah. George, oh, yeah. George H.W. Bush was involved heavily and knew all about it, but got off the hook with that one. Uh, it was, uh, and anyway, so I was there and saw all this going on and I felt it was going to happen. I knew there was going to be another Vietnam and there was going to be a dirty war too because Nicaragua was not going to give up. They were tough fighters. So I was in Honduras, among other places, and I could see the buildup. Salvador, you could see the buildup. They, they were cheating on the number of troops just to avoid Congress, you know. And in the streets of Honduras, you, you felt the vibe that we're going into Nicaragua. Thank God the, uh, uh, the CIA blew it when uh, one of their pilots got shot out of the, uh, shot out of the on a cargo flight over, got shot, shot down and revealed everything, like typical CIA screw-up from... It just happened several times in our history, actually. Indonesia had happened. And that became a scandal. And Reagan had to change his whole policy. He had to back off. First of all, they were going to impeach him, but he didn't want that. So that was, he had to deny everything. And the, the support for the war in Nicaragua vanished in during that period when Platoon came out. In October, started to happen in October 86. And I think if it hadn't happened, I think there would have been another Vietnam down there. That's what it's about. Yeah, it, they, the hatred for any revolutionary movement in South America or Central America is intense. Yeah. And we and saw it. I mean, we saw they removed the leader of they're, they're going after Venezuela horribly, you know, every day. It's just mm -hmm. uh, I hope to God it doesn't blow, but they got the Bolivian leader, they got the Ecuadorian leader, uh, they got the Paraguay leader, that, they got the Brazilian, they got the Brazilian, I mean, they've done a great counter coup in recently against the leftist revolution in South America. I covered that on in my documentaries. And that's exactly what I wanted to ask you about, because you did travel to South America and profiled 
a number of, of left-wing leaders from Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, Evo Morales in Bolivia, the Kirshners in Argentina, Correa in Ecuador, Castro in Cuba, Lula da Silva in Brazil, and Fernando Lugo in Paraguay. And the reason I list them all is to make that exact point you just brought up, which is that unfortunately only the governments of Venezuela and Cuba have remained revolutionary to this day, thanks to these coups and lawfare campaigns waged by the U.S. government. So. I'm just wondering, why did you decide to make that film? Because it really, it had an impact on me and I found it so interesting to see these leaders demonized in U.S. media to be walking the streets freely among their people in a way that U.S. presidents would never be able to do. Who is Hugo Chavez? Some believe he is the enemy. He's more dangerous than bin Laden and the effects of Chavez's war against America could eclipse those of 9-11. Some believe he is the answer. But no matter what you believe, in South America he is just the beginning. Yeah, it's my problem is I like underdogs and it's cost me uh, because I've always gone for that. So I just don't like bullies and I've hated them all my life. And that's what we are. Uh, the underdogs have had very little chance, and they're struggling, scraping out these revolutions. Reform is so difficult down there because they have so many, such an upper class system that discriminates against people of color, discriminates against poorer people. And you see it everywhere. And uh, land reform is one of the hardest things to pull off. And that's, as we know from Castro in Cuba, he, they still hate him for that that he changed the equation. And, and of course, Chavez too, he changed the equation enormously. He brought out of extreme poverty a huge population and uh, they've never forgiven him for that. So actually these films that I've done have not, are not profitable. The United States average citizen doesn't care about South America. It's treated like an overgrown weed, weed back for us. We never think about these people. But this is what we're doing in our backyard, as if we own the place. It's one of the saddest stories of this, of my lifetime that I've seen. It's just, and my Salvador film was was not that successful at first. It, only because of Platoon did it get carried. It was ignored. Same thing for South of the Border, Comandante, the the two major documentaries I made. Uh, it's been hard to do those subjects. It's very hard. Yeah, but I do think you've made a difference in in making the public care more about the region. So I appreciate that. I wanted to close by asking you to talk. Go ahead. I'm sorry, I just wanted to say the name, the name of the Chavez film was South of the Border. And I had interviews with not eight, eight presidents. Yeah. Went around. It was an amazing sweep, a new social movement that was sweeping South America. Yeah, it was a beautiful film and it was amazing. It was an amazing time to think that all of those people were in power and it's it's really heartbreaking to see where some of those countries have since ended up. Uh, but I wanted to close by just asking you to talk about Hollywood because your former professor at NYU and fellow filmmaker Martin Scorsese has caught attention for pointing out that the blockbusters coming out of Hollywood as of late have lost their sense as, as an art form, really. And he expresses real sadness over the fact that companies such as Netflix and Hulu, as well as superhero movies and franchises, seem to dominate the industry. Do you share his sentiment and how do we get Hollywood back? <laughs> uh, don't ask me. I'm, I'm a pariah in the business, I suppose. I just don't understand. Uh, I agree with him. Uh, it's... Uh, you know, first of all, we have to get theaters back right now with the COVID. There's no theaters, so there's no even standard to go. There's no movies until there are theaters because movies are a collective experience and you hope for the best when you have a collective experience. Other people join in and you have that sense of bonding, whether it's a comedy or a drama film, you feel it, an audience, it runs through the audience's spine. That's missing. Watching a film at home in a on a screen is on a, even on a large screen is not the same thing it, it, unless you invite a hundred people into your living room. So it's, it's uh, difficult. Uh, when, when they do come back the theaters, if they do, which I think they will, uh, it'll still be the same problem. It'll be blockbusters because the kids go and that's, they want to see fantasy and big action, but the human dramas, which are often smaller in scale, 
are going to be more and more difficult to get through the system. Uh, and it's a, it's a tough problem, and it's, it's an art form that's kind of disappearing, as all art forms do. In some way or another, they get, you know, they get repurposed. Um, and uh, you know, there was a run on classical art, and uh, there's a new f a new kind of filmmaking that will replace the old films. But I still love the old films. I mean, we have created in a hundred years in the world, we've created a new, an enormous treasure of cinema. Great stories that people don't even know. I mean, they could sit at home and watch these movies they don't even heard of and they would be entertained, but that's gone. It's like fans have to, what is it, you know, what is the time that the new things come into being and sometimes they're not as good, but they're considered to be popular. Yeah, yeah. Uh, reading your book, I definitely started to miss going to the movies, <laughs> just this, the feeling that you described just now. And, and also considering what you've just said, which is that films were very different, I think, when you were making the ones that you've written about in this book. And now we just don't get the same, the same level of quality, I, I, I feel, and the the obsession with like made for TV, Netflix, that kind of thing. It, it, I think we are losing an appreciation for for these films. So I, I, I would hope that viewers get your book, read it, and then also spend some time going back and watching old films. It's a great way to spend quarantine. It's definitely what I've been trying to do while stuck at home. And maybe your book will inspire people to look back at some of your work and, and a lot of the other films and, and directors that you, you speak about because uh, they're, they're just stand the test of time. Also, another thing you should think about, I, I think it's, it's very evident, is since 2001, the degree of patriotism of the films supporting the United States is evident. Uh, the Netflix world don't, 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 really, uh, don't really tolerate uh, intense criticism. The, uh, uh, you have to check this out and you'll, very few films are honestly critical of the, the, call it the military or the foreign policy structure of this country, as my films were, they're not being made. And there's a re it's a either it's self-censorship or because you just can't get on, you can't get a streaming service to back it. This is a serious problem. Uh, it is, and I guess it's in some ways up to the consumers to really demand uh, a break with what we've got and, and show that we still have an appreciation for what, for what used to be done, because I think that's, that's the point of film, right, is to you, what you were doing with criticizing the war in Vietnam or casting a light on, on just U.S. society in general, I think. That, that's why we watch film, and so... I appreciate you making so much time for me this afternoon and thank you for writing this book. And again, I hope viewers will read it and, and watch some old films. I hope so too. Uh, thank you very much.